Ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chicky Fitzgerald. And once again, we have the most amazing treat for you. For those of you who are entrepreneurs, who are seeking funding or have just a killer idea that has been uh, swirling around in your head, you have got to read this book. It is called Crack the Funding Code. And not only does it have the most amazing graphic on the front, I just finally noticed it, uh, of this crack, which has money coming out of it, which uh, is just brilliant. And so I would love to introduce you to my new best friend, Judy Robinette, who is the author of this incredible book about how investors think and what they need to hear to fund your startup. Judy, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome, Tricky, and I'm just delighted to be here. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, for those who are listening, Judy and I took a, a shot at this interview last Friday. I was using a new platform, and as oft happens when you try new things, it didn't go uh, completely smoothly, and we did not get the recording. So Judy and I agreed that not only was that a blessing in disguise, but we've also decided to make this a two-part interview. So we are going to go through the outline of the book. Uh, we're not going to go quite as deep as we might, but we're going to just give you uh, enough to make you hungry. And then you're going to go out, you're going to buy the book, and then we're going to have part two of the show uh, in a, a few days or a few weeks. We haven't decided exactly when, but then we can dive in and you'll have the framework of the book firmly in hand. And we may even allow you to call in and ask Judy questions. So Judy, thank you so much again. And would you please give our listeners a thumbnail of your background and how you came to write this, this roadmap for early stage companies. Sure. So I was in the corporate world and thought I would uh, throw up Sunday nights thinking about going to work <laughs> on Monday morning <laughs> and uh, happened to give a, a, a speech to uh, women at, at MIT on power. And somebody handed me a wall street journal and it had this wonderful article on how to be financially uh, free uh, in the United States. And the study showed there were five ways. Number one, be a lawyer, be a doctor, inherit it, marry it. And I thought, well, the first four are out. <laughs> and, and number five, let's start a business. And I went, start a business. How hard could it be? Well, right. I came home and dumb me, I did a franchise restaurant. I went and got a $1.3 million SBA loan. And several years into it, I you know, thought I was going bankrupt and went to a, a bankruptcy attorney just terrified, shaking in my shoes. And he said, you know, you're not even close. And I said, but I'm broke. I don't have any money. He said, listen, they can break you, but they can't eat you. Oh. And so I went back. I turned that company around, sold it, uh, then became CEO of a public company for about 10 years, a biotech company. And then I was asked by a friend to vet this unknown company in Park City called Skull Candy. And the founder had been bankrupt three times. He had products stuck in China, about a quarter of a million in sales. 
and he had no books. <laughs> and wow. I told him, you know, we got to have books here. And I helped uh, give him ideas on surrounding himself with a powerful board that it would mitigate the risk as viewed by the investors. He was funded and the company went public two years ago for just under a half a billion. So I became just really enamored with startups. Um, I became a, a investor with Golden Seeds, third largest angel investing network in the nation. And um, then started, you know, continue to help founders to, to this day. And I wrote the book because I was so sad to meet founders who had arguably a really solid business model and they could not figure out the funding. And the VC world is a bit, uh, you know, I decided I would have to uh, demystify the process to make it easier to find investors, to know what investors to go to. And so I wrote the book in the hopes that I could help people everywhere that were having trouble finding funded funding. Well, you know, I think the amazing thing, Judy, and, and I found this just in our time on Friday on the phone, is not only do you provide the practical tips, but you actually provide such encouragement. And, and to me, when I look at companies that have not yet been funded, usually it's because they haven't had the sales traction that they need. And a lot of entrepreneurs, excuse me, a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly in tech, are, are product people, right? And they may not be the coders, but they have the idea, they have the concept, they can see it, you know, fully baked, right? It's not just an idea. They see it all the way through, but they perhaps don't have the sales skills. And if you don't have the sales skills, it's hard to get traction. And if you don't have sales skills, it's also hard to get funding. And, and all three of those things fit together. So let's, let's start with cracking the code of entrepreneurial success. And you talk in this first section of the book about the funding mindset and really how to think like an investor. So how do we do that? Well, you you know, most people are just so enamored with their, their startup. You know, they'll meet an investor and they're going on and on and on about their brilliant product and yada, 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 and not realizing that the investor needs to be viewed as a customer. And that customer, number one, wants to know how you're going to pay them back. Yes. And so it's absolutely critical to know what your exit strategy is. And, you know, honestly, 95% of exits are strategic sales. Uh, and then the second thing is the investor worries about losing their money. And so they're looking at, at risk and, you know, they want to know, can you really execute on the promises that you've made? Um, have you got the market, the total yeah. uh, market size right? Have you really honestly looked at the competition? So they're looking at you to make sure um, that you can deliver on your promise, you and your executive team. So the, the two top ways to set yourself apart from everybody else is to be clear on your exit strategy and to mitigate risk as viewed by the investor. And, um, you know, there's a couple of great books out there. I'll, I'll share one in, in, uh, for, your, uh, for the show notes, Chicky, and it's written by Howard Stevenson, who is the, the father of entrepreneurism at Harvard. And he wrote a book for investors to learn how to invest. 
And, and I actually, you know, learned a lot from that book. And then my being on, I'm on VC boards. Um, and so I look at deals all over the world. I do pitch events globally. And so I, I kind of learned that those things are really important. And it's, it's true. You need to be passionate about your company and, and your product. But if you put yourself in the shoes of the investor, you'll be so much further ahead. Oh, I, that so resonates with me. So you talk in the book about the three C's that investors seek. Yes. So the first one um, that is really important is um, your coachability. So angels in particular are wealthy individuals, usually who have sold a company and now want to invest uh, why have your money stuck in a bank account for 1.2% interest if you're lucky? <laughs> and so, but, but they don't just want to write a check. They, they want to be involved. They've been there and done it. They're, you know, often referred to as adult supervision. And so if you're coachable, um, the, the first way to get yourself kicked out of a pitch event is to come across as arrogant or a know-it-all because nobody can build a company alone. And if you're not open to suggestions, why does somebody mm. want to work with you? And oh, so, absolutely. you know, another thing I say is they've got to know you, like you, and trust you before they will fund you. And that is all combined in with this being coachable. The second one has to do with your character. And Howard Stevenson at Harvard once said, the first time he smells a dishonest and exaggerated a comment, he runs. He doesn't walk because he knows his money is going to get flushed down the toilet. Mm. And so really, really important, your your character. And of course, all of us, when we, we go looking for money, uh, are nervous and, you know, feel like we're broke. But the reality is your problem solves the investor's problem, which is they're looking for a good deal. And it's important to be able to be very honest if they ask you something, say you don't know, you'll be happy to get back to them. And the third one is your confidence. And it's important to be confident because if you're not confident, how are you going to go find customers? How, how are you going to get that sales traction that you mentioned early? Without and, a doubt. and something I was taught that was really helpful when I became CEO of the public company, uh, I had just went to give the chairman and the board uh, guidance and, and they asked me three times to be the CEO. And I kept saying, I can't be the CEO of a public company. And I finally went, hello. You know, when I was young, I used to wish I was a guy, so I could have been a CEO. So <laughs> I, I took that on. Uh, they were delisted, they were in litigation and they were broke. And, but, but I successfully, you know, raised quite a bit of money. But for the first three months, I'd walk around the house and I'd say, I can't be the CEO of a public company. What am I thinking? And, and my, my PR guru took me to lunch one day and he had worked for one of the biggest PR firms in the world. And they had asked him to be an actor in a training film. And he liked it so well that he decided he would go uh, try to get some little parts in movies or TV shows, but he got turned down 90% of the time. And his agent sent him to a Chinese character actor and the guy had him, you know, stand up, say out loud several times a day, walk around the house. I am perfect for the part. And, and I can tell you, I did that and it worked. And so this is a really good remedy for fear. And, and the other one is to realize 
you're the answer to the inv the investors' prayers. They're looking well, for good deals. And again, I laugh at that, Judy, because I think I shared with you when we talked on Friday, my last venture, we raised $7 million and I raised $6 million of it from a, a local, uh, and I'm going to call him an angel, but he, he had the money of an angel, but had the character of a private equity company, which was not a good mix. Yes, yes, indeed. And, and <laughs> And I put a million of my own resources into that deal. And then we went to try to get uh, private equity money. And, and, and so he brought in an investment banker and we spent a boatload of money. I mean, it, it was just absolutely ungodly what we spent on a private placement memorandum, what we, you know, just all the way through every component of that deal was bad. Uh, but the, the reason I laugh is I used to have this dream. Every time I would go to any big event where I would be with a bunch of successful business people, and I would dream that I was on a ski lift going up. First of all, I don't like heights. Second of all, I hate being cold, which is why I live in Florida, by the way. And three, I'm not a terribly good skier. My very first ski trip to Colorado, I tore... Uh, my my uh, ACL, and and so skiing like does not have this wonderful appeal for me. I'd rather be at the bottom drinking something nice and hot, right? Um, but anyway, the dream is I'm going up. I'm cold. I'm I'm fearful, right? In this dream, which is not my character at all. But I'm watching all these men skiing in suits on moguls. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Effortlessly. Right. And then so the, the other side of this is when we started talking to investment bankers, they would say, oh, so kindly to me that as the the uh, idea person behind this venture and the founder, that surely I couldn't be the CEO. Right. But now I say and I haven't used those words, but I have written them in caps on my notes. I am perfect for the part. And in, in my book, which uh, I will get in your hands soon, uh, I say I am the CEO of a well-funded tech company based in Tampa, Florida, because the other thing I was hearing from investors is, oh, you can't be in Florida. Right. And, and there's there's no talent there. And and I went to a conference a couple of weeks ago where uh, one of the major uh, Florida funding companies is actually called Florida Funders. And they're trying to change Florida from the uh, sunshine state to being not only the sunshine state, but the startup state. So I'm, I'm very excited about all of that. But you just gave me one more tool in my arsenal. I am perfect for the part. So let's go on. Uh, I want to touch on the deal breakers that make them run. You already talked about being overly confident and coming off cocky and the opposite of coachability, which is being a know-it-all, right? So what else makes them run? Yeah, so maybe less sinful and maybe not not run, but it, it gives investors the feeling that you're an amateur and of course they, they don't want to give money to an amateur is if you um, haven't done your homework um, and you say things like if I get just half of 1% of the Chinese market my company is going to be worth a billion dollars next year 
Well, oh, Facebook yeah. wasn't worth a billion dollars next year. So <laughs> being, being wrong or exuberant or exaggerating, and it, yes. it shows you haven't done your, your homework. Uh, another one is, I have no competition, which means there's no market. <laughs> uh, and that one also shows, you know, you, you don't quite know what you're, you're talking about. And, and of course, if you don't know your, your numbers, you're going to be like a deer in headlights when they ask you, what is your customer acquisition cost? Right. And so it's really important to do your homework thoroughly. Uh, and, and often I have people do a business plan just so they've, not that they're going to use it on, on a pitch. Um, and, and by the way, Chickie, uh, you found out real quickly, a private placement doc just goes in the trash, right? You just wasted $20,000. And, and so it's, it's important that you do your homework and you don't make some of those common uh, mistakes. And, and the way to do that is before you ever get in front of an angel group, find an entrepreneur who's successful Go to the chamber, find a local investor, and just ask them to go through the pitch with you and point out areas that uh, may need some work. And, and, you know, some of these people uh, have gone on, and a couple of them in particular I, I worked with, and they, again, they were just so caught up and in love with their product, they really were so self-assured that it was going to work regardless, and, and that got them in, in trouble. Wow. Well, that that is just so practical. And, and again, that's one of the things I love about your book is it's not theoretical, right? You give such great practical examples. So we've talked a little bit about the preparation now, getting in the right mindset, knowing what to do, what not to do. But how do you actually find the right investor? And and you, you mentioned something to me the other day that... Uh, really took me back and I've, I've had to think about it a little bit because we have partnered with an investment bank to help us raise our money so that I don't have to work, worry about the technical details of doing things properly. And, and, you know, they're FINRA certified and all of the things that I know are important, but what I've done differently just in the few days since you and I first talked is I have taken ownership of making the connections with the investors themselves and not relying on them a hundred percent to source the investors. Not that they won't bring great people to the table because I, I know, I know their, their reach and the kinds of people they're looking at, but, but where do you tell people to start and is there money out there, Judy? Oh my gosh. There's 279 trillion of private global wealth. So there's no lack of money out there. And by the way, that's the pot of friends and family. So depending on where you are with your startup, usually you start with your, your own money uh, and then move to friends and family. And then the next level is angel investors. And there's 300 angel groups in the United States, equally from north, south, west, and east. And 75% of them only invest locally in the state where they live because they want to be hands-on and coach you. Yes. And so, you know, Google uh, angel investors anywhere. I mean, even in Idaho, I, I think there's three or four angel groups. They're, they're everywhere. And so you can find them on Google. You can talk to your chamber. You can find an attorney and accountant that are service providers 
to other startups. They know where all the investors are. You can go to the SBA, the SBDC. There's one of these in, in every county. Their services are free. They are heavily connected to investors. There's one SBDC that's down by St. George, Utah. And, and I think uh, to date they've helped uh, with a billion dollars of funding just with, wow. uh, with uh, people that are in that county. And so, and score. So there, uh, there really is no lack of money. It's just educating yourself a little bit. So besides local angel groups, there are some that are national. Golden Seeds is national. They are specific to women founders, or there has to be a woman that has a significant equity stake in the company. Um, and there's, there are some that are, are national. And so start with Google. Go to the people who are already in the startup community. It could be at your university or college um, and ask, you know, I teach people my two golden questions, I call it. So you tell them a little bit about your startup. And then question one is, what other ideas do you have for me? And number two, who else do you know I should talk to? Well, there's always angels around that are happy to mentor you because you may turn into a good enough deal they'll want to invest. And so there are people out there waiting and watching and hoping you will show up. Mm, I love that. So you, you talked a little bit about the progression from friends and family. So uh, my particular uh, situation with my current company is uh, I did personally fund for a very long time and perhaps took it a little slower than maybe I should have, but I, I felt, uh, you know, a tad burned from my first experience. Sure. And we won't go into that on this particular call, but maybe we'll dive into that on, uh, on part two. But, uh, I, I decided to take it very, very slow. Uh, and I, I did development using third parties and I didn't have a technical co-founder. And then actually I came out to, uh, to your neck of the woods and spent time in Provo and Salt Lake city. And because I, I loved the model of what was happening out there, which is really a, a group of people who did have a lot of money to put into ventures, trying to reshape the, the reputation of the industry as a really startup friendly area. And there are so many great tech companies out there. So there's tons of talent. And uh, what I learned there was uh, from our mutual friend, John Richards, that I really needed a technical co-founder. And so once I started bringing in my team and putting my team together, then I had just a whole bunch of sweat equity that was coming into the company and uh, ended up using a methodology uh, by Mike Moyer called slicing pie, which, you know, you and I are going to talk some more about that offline, but it allowed me to, to create an accurate picture of the company's ownership based on the time and energy and the intellectual property that I had put in, but to still recognize other people who are contributing. Then we took it in, in a little bit of friends and family uh, from my board and one of my board members uh, actually brought in investors, which is uh, another fascinating way to raise money. I, I hadn't even thought about that. And that's not why I brought him on the board. Um, but now, uh, again, we're ready to look for uh, what, we're calling seed, but I want you to tell me what we should be calling that. We're not at series A yet, but is it seed to, to take it from that friends and family to the next, whether it's angels or family offices or 
you know, small private equity companies? What do you call that next round? Well, usually it is called seed. Uh, and, and, you know, now we've got pre-seed and pre-pre-seed. I mean, there's all, <laughs> all kinds of different terms, but, you know, it used to be if it was seed, it was, you know, less than 500K. Uh, and then angels, um, you know, can syndicate. For instance, when I was with Golden Seeds, we syndicated deals with 120 other angel groups across the country and early stage VCs. And so, uh, yes, usually anything that's, you know, prior to uh, a series aid is a seed round and it can be pre-seed, seed, post-seed. You know, it depends on right, right. sometimes it takes longer. But how much money are you raising? Um, I think we're going to be raising four million now. Uh, we had been looking at three, but uh, we've got some deals that we're about to close that are going to raise our valuation significantly, and we really need to make sure that we have enough runway to really run and scale, and to not spend all of next year fundraising for the next round. It, it is yeah. such a distraction to yeah. do that. So yeah, four so large. That's a large mm -hmm. chunk, um, yes. and, and that would require angels syndicating yes. uh, or going to an early stage VC. And as I told you, I'm happy to introduce you to some of those in New York I know. Uh, and certainly Golden Seeds, would uh, they have a fund besides having angel investors, but they, mm -hmm. they can do you know $4 million rounds. Right. Well, here, here's the interesting question for you. Um, you know, because I, I do believe that terminology matters and you do have to fit into the community in what they are saying. But because I'm a game changer, dare I say, right, yeah. uh, I am trying to recast a company at my stage. I don't want to be called a startup at all because startup implies that none of the infrastructure is in place to grow a company and that, that you're really you know, fairly close to idea stage, right? And I consider my company an emerging company, which means that we're just about to bust through to the scaling of, of the, uh, the revenue streams. And how important is it to fit into the terminology and the methodologies that the funding community uh, really have, have created and nurtured and in, in some ways are holding on to old concepts that maybe don't even work anymore? Yeah, so I've never heard the term emerging company. But I mean, hey, you have now. You heard it here. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if you're not revenue positive, you're a startup. <laughs> but um, uh, so it is. It is important, and and it shows you can speak their language. And I think one of the things that we talked about last week was, um, you know, investors prefer you being a Delaware Corp because they yes. know the rules of the game and and how that works. I've got. Lylan Masterman, who is a general partner at White Star VC in New York, uh, they did the Shave Club exit of a, a billion dollars. I recently asked him if he would consider serving on the board of a startup. And, and he said, or the first thing is, are they a Delaware Corp? And so, you know, terminology is important and understanding yes. what the, the investor would like to make his or her life easier. Right. And I am so glad you shared that because that was another aha moment from our first conversation that the, the more you can reduce friction yes. for the person who is considering investment, the better off you will be. And, 
you know, I, I've already set things in motion to become uh, a Delaware uh, LLC. And, and so, uh, again, the practicality of this is no one has time to learn the laws of all of our states. Yes. Right. Nor yes. nor do we want our federal government to put their little mitts in this because they haven't proven uh, so adept at building businesses either. You know, case in point, the post office and Amtrak. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Or well, General Motors or, or anything else. Right. Uh, so you can you can transition to an LLC, but you very quickly need to at least have in motion being a C Corp. So there is equity. Uh, so that the the investors uh, can invest. Yes. Yes. And, so and you know, once, so, yeah. So the, let, let me just hit on that for a second before we move on. So if you were going after angels, they're typically okay with LLCs, correct? Uh, no. No. Um, how how do you get equity? You have to have stock. Well, what we what we do is we give them uh, ownership based on the number of units that they have in the LLC, and they then they get the capital contribution separate. I mean, that's the way you report LLCs on the K one, and um, that is how that is done. So we pass on the losses or the profits, right, yeah, to the LLC. I don't, I don't think that works. Okay. I mean, well, it, people, tried, people tried in the past to set up LLCs and argued about taxes and stuff, but, uh, you know, investors want equity and they want it really clear and, and they want it clear for tax reasons, for yes. losses. Uh, so, no, I've never been involved in a deal that they funded with an LLC. And, and the one term I wanted to mention to you, so when we talk about you know, making it frictionless, the term in the investing community is, you know, how much hair is on the deal? Because <laughs> if, if you're not a Delaware C-Corp, if you're, uh, uh, you haven't done the things that make it simple, uh, why should they bother with you? They see a thousand deals every couple of months and they can find one that's easier, that they don't have to worry um, uh, about problems. So a common problem is people will get their local accountant to do their pro formas. Um, and, and those usually are, are substandard compared to what an investor would like to see. Right. Um, and, and often, uh, you know, so their uncle Bill or somebody has put some money in and it hasn't been documented uh, correctly. So it messes up the capitalization table. Uh, that's hair on the deal. And the investor goes, why bother here? You know, I'm not going to stay here until they unravel all of these things. Obviously, they don't quite know what they're doing yet. And, and sometimes they'll mentor you and work with you to get you through that stuff. And so uh, and I'll send some articles. And, and one of them is how to avoid hair on the deal. And it kind of goes through all the different categories. Well, that is uh, great advice. And as I mentioned to you on Friday, I'm, I'm in the process of removing the things that I know now to be here on my deal. And it's, it's really very straightforward and simple. And, and people are very cooperative when you explain to them why you need to do certain things. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Um, Judy, you know, I, we have uh, spent about 30 minutes uh, talking about this and, you know, we barely scratched the surface of what you provide in Crack the Funding Code. What I would love to do is to just break right here. We've been 
talking about cracking the code for entrepreneurial success and how to find the right investors, who's got the money, you know, what's your, your funding roadmap. You've talked a little bit about how to network to find your way to the right investors, but because I know you're a networking expert, I really want to dig into that more deeply and I'd like to save it for part two of our interview. So right now I'd like to break and I would like to encourage our listeners to run, not walk to your closest bookseller. And whether that's online and you're a Kindle fan or whether you like to have the physical book in your hand, go by Crack the Funding Code, How Investors Think and What They Need to Hear to Fund Your Startup by Judy Robinette. And then go and join the Game Changer Network. Go to the gamechanger.network and we will make sure that you're invited to the second part of this interview, where you'll actually be able to ask Judy questions if you would like. We will be posting the timeline of that show there. So again, www.thegamechanger.network. Just follow the join uh, button. It's completely free, but we would love to have you with us. Judy, thank you so, so much. It has been so great, Judy, to have you here. And I can't wait for the second part of our interview. Thank you. It's been just a joy. Well, it really has. And I will be in touch soon to get that scheduled. And have a blessed day, Judy. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald.